welcome. I want to share with you a few words of encouragement. I've said it a couple of times today. I've gone through this in my head so many times in my life that you almost feel like it's finally coming true because I'm sure anybody who's ever bought a lottery ticket thinks about what they're going to do with the money the next day and all the people they can help and, you know, and so I feel like it's it's almost been coming. I really do. <laughs> my uh, siblings have given me grief for years about how I talk about I'm going to win the lottery someday and um, actually we just got together not so long ago for my dad's 80th birthday and we were playing this game. I don't remember the gist of it exactly, but you had to pick who in the crowd would match this description. And the description was, their financial plan consists of playing the lottery. <laughs> well, everybody picked my name, and they thought it was funny then. <laughs> <laughs> Who's right now? She uh, called me at like 8.30. She said, uh, are you a millionaire yet? And I said, I don't, I'm so busy, I don't have time to look. And uh, she said, well, I think the Powerball was 32. Well, I always pay attention to my Powerball. I had two 32s out of the five numbers. Not that at all. Was the next number 59? She said, uh, I think it was. She didn't have it up in front of her at this point. And then she said, I think five was in there too. And I said, oh my God, I have five too. <laughs> but I'm really busy. We have to do this later. <laughs> I have work to do. I can't deal with this right now. She's like, no, we already know you have three numbers. We have to go through them now. So we went through them. And sure enough, they were right, and I said, I'll have to call you back later, and I went, woo, <laughs> ran around the office, and everybody's like, oh, God, what happened, what happened? I told you I've been waiting for this day of my entire life. <laughs> not waiting. I mean, you I'm going to wait two weeks for my money. <laughs> Start the clock right now. <clears throat> Whatever it is you want in life, you have to see yourself there. And that's what I did. The night Cynthia wrote $112 million on a piece of paper, she visualized all the children around her. Okay, so this time when you buy this ticket, the one that eventually wins, did you have a feeling? Oh, yes. I saw the number 112 million, and I said, that's mine, that's my number. I know it's mine. Cynthia says six random numbers, five kids, and one positive attitude made her a mogul. I'm still the same person. Uh, I just have more resources to do the things that I want to do. I know if it wasn't for keeping the faith and the belief that, you know, visualizing the end result and just... I kept believing it. I kept seeing myself holding that check and knowing that it was going to happen. And it did. Remarkable. Yeah. I'm so distracted. I've got it. Yeah. All, all I kept thinking was, I'm going to manifest it soon. So that's here. So now the next step is talk to a financial advisor and oh, yeah. move forward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> move forward advisor. with it. Uh, say hi to the folks on YouTube. Say hi, folks on YouTube. Hi, folks on YouTube. Okay, see, we got folks here. We got folks here live in the room with us today. And when I say words are the way to wealth, um, there's a lot to be said on this subject. I am going to say some things that are going to be confirming, but I'm also going to say some things that are going to be controversial um, in some circles. And uh, I believe overall, though, it will be helpful for you to understand these principles. Um, in Proverbs chapter 12, the whole, the whole chapter of Proverbs chapter 12 has a lot to say about life and business. Um, but Proverbs chapter 12, verse 14, it says, A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hands shall he, 
shall be rendered unto him. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 2 says, A man shall eat good by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the transgressors shall suffer violence, or shall eat violence. Uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 20 says, A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips he shall be filled. Words matter. In fact, a side note, uh, you've probably heard me talk about before that in the Hebrew language, words are let, like, the Hebrew language is not just phonetic, like English is phonetic. It's not just symbolic, like ancient languages are symbolic. It's both, but it's also constructive, like the chemical language. If I write H2O on the board, you know that I'm talking about water. Because when you put the components on the board, like if you write down the components, you're telling people what the thing is made of. Well, Hebrew words are like that. You don't just spell words, you build words, right? And words are the building materials that God used to build the world. It says in Genesis chapter 1, in English, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Right? That's what it says. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That is not a, that's not a complete transaction. I mean, a translation transaction. It's not a complete translation. It's not a complete translation because there is one word that's repeated twice in Genesis chapter 1 1 in the Hebrew that's not translatable into English. So understand that all translation is commentary. That's why it's so important to do word studies by using a Strong's Concordance and a Bind's Expository Dictionary and all these other study tools where we can understand what the words mean so we can understand what the word means. Right? And so interestingly enough, the Hebrew, one of the Hebrew words for the word word or for the word to speak, is also the same word for the word matter. So not only do words matter, but words are matter, and matter is made of words. It says in John, John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Him who? Him, the Word. Well, in Hebrew, Genesis 1-1 matches John 1-1 through 3 more than it does in English. Because in Hebrew, here's what it says. Genesis 1-1. Rashid bara Elohim. Here's the word that's not in English. Et. Rashid bara Elohim et. Hashemaim va'et aharetz. So et is mentioned twice. Et is spelled Aleph Tav. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Tav is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So when it says Et, it's like Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega. If he were speaking Greek, that's what he would have said. But he was more than likely speaking Hebrew because he was a Hebrew. He would have said, I am the Aleph Tav. So when it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, the same was in the beginning with God, in Genesis 1-1 in Hebrew, that word, word, is there. The et, the alphabet, the alphabet, the word, the, the, the building blocks of everything. Je Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 3, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. People oftentimes mistakenly think that the physical world is the real world, 
this invisible world is some kind of invisible representation. I promise you, you got it backwards. The invisible world is real is the real world. The physical world is a manifestation of that reality. Just like this table, just like this phone, just like this water is made, even though I can hold it in my hand, it's made of, and I can see it with my eyes, it's made of invisible molecules that I cannot see. That is a picture that points to, witnesses and shares to everyone. That's a scientific principle that points to and witnesses to every, everything that the physical world was made by and from the invisible world. For me to think that physicality is reality and invisibility is not is to think that I am more real than God. I can't be more real than God if he made me. He has to be more real than me. So invisibility is more powerful than physicality. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Doubt is created in the eyes. Faith is created in the ears. What you see will make you doubt. What will you hear will cause you to believe because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When I say the same thing to me that God has said to me about me, then and only then do I know who I really am. When I say about a situation to a situation, what God says about that situation, then and only then do I recognize that situation. Because God's word is not just true. God's word is truth. There's a difference between what's true and what's truth. What's true is dynamic and can change. What's truth is static and cannot change. What's truth is incontrovertible. In the words of Winston Churchill, malice may attack it, ignorance may deride it, but in the end, there it is. Now, you may be wondering, well, Myron, what does that have to do with words being the way to wealth? The verses that we read said, a man shall eat good by the fruit of his mouth. And I was thinking, like, why, how, how does my mouth produce fruit? And it didn't just, by the way, it didn't just say a man will eat by the fruit of his mouth. It said a man shall eat good by the fruit of his mouth. That is, as long as the seeds that are coming out of your mouth are good seeds. Mm, I wish I had some heaven now. Uh, hey, it, I want to make sure that the words I say are words of power, not words of weakness. Words that empower and encourage, not words that tear down and discourage. The scripture says, let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt. Grace, what's grace? Grace, the word grace comes from the Greek, in the, in the, in the New Testament, comes from the word, the Greek word kairos, from which we get charismatic, right? It means gift. Let your words be with grace, with a gift. Season with salt. Let your words be like a gift that you give to the people who hear them. Let me ask you a question. Are the words that you speak like a gift to the people who hear them? Mm, that's a good question. Unless the words that I speak are not like a gift that I give to the people who hear them. So I want to make sure, I want to make sure that my tongue uses words to build up and not to tear down, to bless and not to curse, to strengthen and not to weaken, 
to empower people and not to disempower people. I want to make sure my words do that. So as I'm reading the different kinds of words in um, Proverbs chapter 12, for instance, where it says in Proverbs chapter 12, I think it was verse number 14 we just looked at. If I can get my iPad to act right here. Um, verse 14, a man shall be satisfied with the good, a man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. Most people don't realize how powerful words are. But your words literally create your wealth or the lack thereof. How? Myron, are you talking about speaking things into existence? No, I'm not talking about that. Because in the scripture, the only one who speaks anything into existence is God. Rashid bara, the word bara means to create out of nothing, to speak into existence. The only one in the entire Bible who baras anything is God. Rashid bara Elohim et. Rashid bara Elohim. Elohim is who? God. God speaks things into existence. You don't speak things. I know, I know there are New Age people who disagree with me. I know there are Christian people, pastors, religious people who disagree with me. That's fine. But the reality is, you already know. You're listening to me. You know. If you could speak something into existence, you would have already spoken something different into existence than what you got in existence right now. Where are my people? Where are my people? <laughs> now, here's what you can do. You can speak a word that causes faith to be created in your heart in a space where doubt previously existed. And that faith gives you the ability to take an action in faith that you could not take in doubt. So when I tell myself, this is going to be awesome, this has a better chance of being awesome than it does if I tell myself this is going to be awful. Why? Because I want to use my words to create faith. And I'm not creating faith. Because faith already existed before I got here. What I'm really doing is I'm installing faith. I'm installing faith into my mind. I'm installing faith into my heart. I'm install installing faith into my focus so my focus can create a feeling in my heart that produces a function in my hand that I could not do when I doubted. Are y'all tracking? It's very important. The words we say are very, very important. We need to be hyper-intentional about every word that comes out of our mouths. Every word. We need to take inventory of our communication ability so that the words that come out of our mouth are building words, not destroying words. All of us can remember a time in our lives when somebody that we looked up to or somebody that we cared about, whose opinion we cared about said something to us that was painful. Painful? Painful. How can a word be painful? Where does it hurt? Does it hurt in your hand? Foot? Your eyeball? Your elo? Where does it hurt? It hurts in your soul. It's interesting that when God created everything, he created three categories in creation, didn't he? What are those three categories? Well, he created creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the grass, the trees, the water. It's creation. He created creatures. Creatures. But in it is what it is. Horses and dogs and cats and giraffes 
chimpanzees and alligators. But hey, Ma, he created creatures. But then God created something unique. He created man, Adam, Adam. God called their name Adam. God didn't call his name Adam. God called their name Adam. Adam later called her name Eve. God created man, not man males, man humans, men and women. God created them. In the image of God created him, male and female created he them. Them who? Them Adam. How did he create them? Well, it's interesting when God created creation, he spoke it. When God created creatures, he delegated it. He delegated the land creatures to the land to produce. Let the earth bring forth the wild beast and the creeping things. When it came to the fish and the fowl, he said, let the water bring forth. But when it came to creating man, this is so fascinating to me. Man, I'm easily fascinated, or maybe it's fascinating. I don't know. I'll let you be the judge of that. When God created man, he didn't speak man into existence like he did creation. You ever think of that? God didn't speak man into it. He spoke to himself. He said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and every creeping thing that moveth upon the earth. But he didn't speak man into existence. He said, let us create man. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, and God formed man from the dust of the ground. And I love this part. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. So God created man in his infinite imagination, then molded a body for the man that he created, and breathed the man that he created into the body that he created for the man. And the only thing that God created, that he gave language to, is man. He didn't, he didn't give language to creation. Not, not the ability to talk about complex and intangible subjects. He didn't give it to cre creatures, except potentially, ostensibly, the serpent, which he took away later. So I'm not going to go into the, the, the long, arduous argument about that. It's not relevant to what we're talking about today. But he gave us words. Why did God give us words? He didn't make us by word, but he gave us words. He didn't give dogs words. You ever think of that? He didn't give trees words. He didn't give birds words, except for the, par or the talking parakeet. And they can only repeat what they've heard, and only some of them can do that. But like human beings, like all, everybody in here, all y'all I'm looking at, the, one I'm looking, the ones I'm looking at on YouTube, which you, you're typing stuff, we can talk. Not only can we speak words, we can type words. We can write words. We can read words. We can understand words. We think with words. Words are our everythingness. It's, 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 words are what we have in common with God that creation and creatures don't have. Language is spiritual. And it's something that only spiritual beings have. That's so powerful. 
so powerful. With words, I can take a feeling from inside of me and install that feeling inside of you. With words, you can take a feeling inside of you and install it inside of me. With words. If I've got a word of encouragement for you, and I keep it from you, shame on me. Shame on me. Withhold not good to whom it is due when it's in the power of your hand to do it. Anybody can say, hello, my parents were so funny. They, they spoke to us in sayings and proverbs. Don't, bed not. Bed not see my mama or my daddy for the first time and not say good morning or hello. My mom say, boy, time of day due to a dog. Hi, mom. In other words, in other words, you'd say hello to a dog. I'm your mother. One of the biggest problems we have in the world today, too many humans have encouraging words that they give to another person that cost them nothing but the intention and care to do it, and they withhold. I mean, you don't have to go take any money out your checking account. You don't have to put anything on your credit card. Walk past a human being and rather look at the ground than to acknowledge the godlikeness in another human being. See, man, I thought you were talking about words creating your wealth. I am. Because guess what? All of the money that you want that you don't have right now is in somebody else's pocket. And if you're mean and rude and disillusioned and negative, nobody wants to give it to you. <laughs> That's fact. When God created everything in Genesis chapter 1, one of the things he created in Genesis chapter 1 is this concept that I call the four levels of value. In fact, I'm going to do it on the board. I know some of you have seen it before. Some of you haven't. So I'm going to do it for those who haven't. For those who have, and bear with me. So, the four levels of value. I'm going to, this is in Genesis chapter 1, by the way. And in Genesis chapter 1, there are so many success principles. It's almost like God gave us a wink and said, in case, in case you don't get to chapter 2, I want you to be all right. <laughs> Right, And there are four levels of value. And what's interesting about the four levels of value is you can pretty much determine how much money somebody makes based on which level they are. And the lowest level of value is implementation. What does that mean? Okay, Remember I said language is spiritual? Remember I said language is spiritual? Guess what else is spiritual? Wealth. And abundance. Yeah, wealth and abundance are spiritual. This is going to make sense to you in a minute. Wealth and abundance are spiritual. Because God is infinite. So wealth is a symbol of godness. Abundance. God, like Jesus said, I am come that you might, the thief cometh not prepared to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life, that you might have more abundance. God is a God of abundance. He said, the scripture says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Abundance is godlike. It's a characteristic of God. And I know, well, all you do is talk about money. I, no, I talk about a whole lot more than money. 
The reason I talk about money and wealth as much as I do is because one, I don't know what happens in churches you go to, but the ones I've gone to, every time they have a prayer meeting, the two things they pray for the most, pray for my finances, pray for my health, pray for my health, pray for my finances. Well, finances are not something that you should necessarily need to pray for. You're a follower of Christ. You have the blessing of Abraham by faith in Christ Jesus. Or maybe you're a natural, you're like, you got the blessing of Abraham. Part of that blessing as well. Like, some people aren't going to like this said that. Do you? I can't help you. I can't help you. I'm just here to tell you, like, God does not want his people to be broke as a joke and ready to choke, running around with your hands stuck out all the time. We have the answers. And if we have the answers to the life's questions in this book called the Bible, why in the world are we walking around acting like we don't know? And I'm not just about money, but yes, about money also. The Bible talks about, why you talk about money? The Bible talks about money. How am I going to teach the Bible and not talk about money? How? Well, the lowest level of value is implementation. And if, you're, if this is where you work, if this is where you create your income on implementation level, guess what? You make somewhere between minimum wage and $80,000 a year. Or 80,000 pounds. How about the same guy can win? <laughs> right? 80,000 pounds, right? Or $80,000. You make minimum wage if you make tacos at Taco Bell, flip burgers at McDonald's. You might make 80000 a year if you work on cars and you're a high-end mechanic for Rolls-Royce or Porsche or Mercedes or whatever. You make 80000 a year. But there's a limit. Why is there a limit on your income if you're an implementer? Because the resource you're using to make money, you are using your muscles over time. Muscles are a physical resource. And you're trying to produce a spiritual outcome. Time is a limited resource, and wealth is an unlimited resource. So you're trying to use a limited resource, I'm sorry, a physical resource times a limited resource to produce an unlimited outcome. No wonder you're broke. I'm, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just telling you, this is how, I didn't set it up this way. I just found it in the Bible. I found it in the Bible. It's in there. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. You say, where is that in Genesis? I'm going to show you in a minute. You just calm down. I'm going to show you. So what's the second level of, of, of second level value? Second level of value is unification. And on the level of unification, you use your management skills to make money. Management skills. On that level, you're going to make somewhere between $40,000 a year and maybe $250,000 a year. Whoop, 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 whoop. If you're managing Taco Bell, you're making 40000 a year. If you're a middle manager at Lockheed Martin or Boeing or one of those country, companies, you're making 250000 a year, which is about 20000 a little more than 20000 a month. Well, that's better than minimum wage. It's so interesting. We were just staying at this hotel downtown Tampa, or yeah, down near downtown Tampa, and at this hotel, uh, the high place, um, they had the housekeeping staff. The hardest working people in the hotel are the housekeeping staff. The lowest paid people in the hotel are the housekeeping staff. Why? Because they are the implementers. If you are the person who does the thing, the amount of money you will make will always be limited. Managing people 
is a higher spiritual activity than doing the thing yourself. Why? Because you have to have some leadership. Leadership is spiritual. Right? You have to have people skills. You have to know how to communicate to people. You have to know how to inspire people. Well, that's... Today, get a dental plan for around a dollar a day. perfect and practice makes permanent. These are sayings that I've gathered through the through the years with people that I meet. You know, my best my best teachers are the students. In fact, I came to the conclusion that the best way to learn is to teach. So when I'm reading something, I'm reading some new principles, some things I didn't know, I tell my husband. And he says, that doesn't make sense. So then I go back to the books. <laughs> and then I try again. In this lecture today, we're going to be looking at the first few laws of health. In the little book, Ministry of Healing, page 127, Ellen White says, pure air, sunshine, abstemishness or temperance, rest, exercise, proper diet, use of water, trust in divine power, these are the true remedies. So let's look at those true remedies. And the first one we're going to have a look at is pure air. Notice it's not just air, it's pure air. And here at Living Springs, I think you'll agree that we specialize in pure air, the best of air. There are so many beautiful evergreen trees around there, and I think you realize those evergreen trees are, are giving off oxygen. And that's what oxygen contains for it to be so essential for our life is oxygen, where uh, um, the, the part of our body, which is actually every part of our body, requires oxygen. And as we looked at yesterday, and I'll show you that again today, going inside the cell, which is the CBD of the human body. So yesterday we went inside and we looked at the journey of the glucose. We touched what happens with oxygen. But I want to pursue that a little bit more today. Remember the glucose goes in, it goes through a 20-step pathway and the 20-step pathway delivers to us two units of energy. The end result of the 20-step pathway is a chemical form of glucose called pyruvate. And pyruvate, as the chemical form of glucose, gets fed into the next part of the cell. It's called the powerhouse of the cell. This is the mitochondria, specifically inside the Krebs cycle, which has an eight-step pathway, but that gives us 36 units of energy. And as we looked at yesterday, this pathway, no oxygen. So it produces energy by the process of fermentation, whereas the eight-step pathway, it uses oxygen. What a difference oxygen makes. And it's because of this fact that, that we understand the statement that you will receive more energy than you expend on your morning walk. And I also showed you the other day how right now you're breathing in 500 mil and you're breathing out 500 mil. But when you got to the top of that hill, did the twins take you up to a hill this morning? Mm -hmm. When you got to the top of the hill, 
and you're starting to breathe like this, you're breathing in 3,600 ml of air and you're breathing out 3,600 ml basically of waste because the combustion of oxygen and glucose at the cellular level gives us carbon dioxide and that is another gas. So when we breathe in, there are little tiny alveoli, they're like little sacs at the end of each bronchial in our, in our lungs. And over, I'll magnify it for you, over that little alveoli is a, a network of capillaries, they're your blood capillaries. So when we breathe in, the oxygen's coming in here, the oxygen goes into the little alveoli, the blood drops the carbon dioxide and picks up the oxygen. It's quite a fascinating process. So then we breathe out the carbon dioxide. Now, every few years we have to do the uh, first aid course. I think no matter where you, you live, you have to do first aid courses. Um, we used to learn um, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Yeah? Well, they don't do that anymore. <laughs> And they don't do that anymore for a few reasons, because when you're breathing in, you are breathing a little bit of oxygen, but not a lot. You're actually breathing quite a bit of carbon dioxide. They recognise now that pumping the, the chest is, is more effective. So that, that's where it all happens, is right down there. So how many of these do we have? We've got about 300 million alveoli in our lungs, and that's where the gaseous exchange takes place. What I want to do in this lecture is show you how you can ensure you're getting optimum amounts of oxygen and how you can prevent anything that would inhibit you taking up the oxygen. But let's first of all make a list of all the things that oxygen does. So what's the effect of oxygen on the body? It invigorates. I don't know whether you've heard of uh, Wim Hof. Wim Hof is a a man, he has a few nods, he, um, he uses breathing to control basically temperature, many things that's happening in his body. And he climbs Himalayan mountains in the snow in shorts and t-shirt. And he's got this method of breathing. It's breathing. And taking in more oxygen invigorates you, yes. It also, um, to the point where it can electrify the cells, that's how you're going to feel when every cell has enough oxygen to be able to give that sort of energy. It also soothes the nerves. We had a, a girl do our, one of our programs and she was about 35 and on her wrist she tattooed Just Breathe. Now, I'm not suggesting we tattoo Just Breathe, I'm giving it as an illustration. She said that she learnt the Wim Hof method of breathing which is breathing very quickly and very deeply and letting out, and she conquered her panic attacks. So whenever she'd feel a bit panicky, she'd do the deep breathing. And she said she even got off all her medication. Now, how simple is that? That's a very simple thing to do. Now, it's a great thing to teach children because this is a skill that they can take through their whole life. I'll tell you what my son Peter does to my little granddaughter, Sophia. Not so much now, but when she was three, you know what little three-year-olds are like? Sometimes I don't want to wear that dress and I don't want to eat that. And I... 
So Peter would take her hands, he'd sit down in front of her and he'd say, now breathe. And she'd have to go, one, two, three, four. And if she got to four and went, I don't want to breathe anymore, he'd say, we'll start again. And she knew that there was only one way out of this and that was breathing. One, two. When she got to 10, he'd say, would you like to breathe again? And if she'd say, no, then they'd start all over again. And if she'd say, yes, honey, and she had to smile, they'd do 10 more, breath, 10 more breaths, and then he'd say to her, have you got something to say to me? And she'd say, this is three, thank you for regulating my emotions, Daddy. <laughs> and he'd say, you're welcome, and off she'd go. Now, let's say a few hours later, he hears a irritated word, he would say, do we need to breathe? No, Daddy, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, Daddy. Isn't that interesting? Such a simple thing. Now, my daughter said they were at a function and a little two-year-old was being difficult. So my granddaughter, Sophia, goes up to her and says, breathe, breathe, three. And she's teaching. Now, can you see what Peter has taught his little girl? How to manage those irritations that come to us every day. Is that right? So whenever you're feeling irritated, remember Peter and Sophia. Breathe. Breathe, it's oxygen, because we've got one trillion brain cells. And when those brain cells have enough oxygen, what's it gonna do? Sorry, I forgot a very important uh, letter there. <laughs> Soothes nerves, all the nerves. <laughs> but let's have a look at the effect of no oxygen. It's called hypoxia. Hypoxia is a medical condition. It's actually a dangerous condition, the sake of oxygen at the cellular level. And it can get to the point of death. But there are many people who are suffering from hypoxia, but they're not to the blue lip stage. They're not on death's door. These are some of the symptoms. Fatigue. Feel like they've climbed a mountain and all they've done is got out of bed. Lethargy. Can't even get out of bed. Nausea. The little cells that make up the stomach don't have enough oxygen and when they don't have enough oxygen they're not producing enough enzymes to break down your food. Headache, the brain cells don't have enough oxygen. I meet many people today that are drifting in that haze that lies between optimum health and severe illness. Do you find that? They're not jumping out of their skin with energy. They're not bedridden, they're just... And if you say, how are you? What's the answer? Oh, not too bad. What's not too bad? Not too good. How many people, when you meet them, and you say, how are you? Say, fantastic. You'd go, what are they on? <laughs> what are they on? Don't you think that's sad that we've come to a time on planet Earth when the only people jumping out of their skin are the people on something? And when the people that are on something, when that eases off or wears off, where are they now? <laughs> I believe that God meant us human beings to feel good every day, every month. Is that right? Yes. Absolutely. Life, life should be very good. And if it's not very good, we've got to put our detective hat on and find out why isn't life very good? Is it because we are lacking oxygen? 
Now I'm going to show you two types of air that greatly influence the uptake of oxygen in our body. One type of air is alive with negative ions. Negative ions are electrically charged oxygen molecules. Where do you find them? Well, let me show you how they're made. Water droplets pass through the air, casting off negative ions. So I memorise that. I like to get it straight from the horse's mouth. So let's have a look. Three things have to be present. Water droplets pass through the air. Pass, there's movement, casting off negative ions. So we've got to have movement, moisture and air. Whenever you've got movement, moisture and air, you've got the production of negative ions. If you've got a lot of moisture, but not a lot of movement or air, what have you got growing there now? Mould, that's right. So moisture, movement and air. Where do we find moisture, movement and air? The thunderstorm. And I think we can all identify with the smell of the air when the thunderstorm hits. It's lovely, isn't it? I sometimes get that smell when I'm watering my garden. Because when I'm watering my garden, what have I got? Moisture, movement and air. Also the ocean waves. The ocean waves pounding against the, the rocks is creating those negative ions. Also the waterfalls. All forests are higher in negative ions than when there's no forest. Because remember what those leaves are doing, they're giving off oxygen. But there is a type of tree that gives off more, and that's the pine. Because the pine needles are so numerous. So with pine needles, you get a huge surface area, giving off moisture, giving off oxygen. And you only have to get the slightest breath of wind and you get those needles moving. Just, just not far from the front of my house, I have some big pine trees. And I love the sound of the wind in the pine trees. Almost sounds like rushing water. And when my little grandchildren are with me, I say, listen. Listen to the wind in the pine trees. On the other hand, we've got positive ions. We're referring to the negative charge and the positive charge here. Remember that positive ions are positively bad for you because po positive ions have more carbon dioxide in their molecule than oxygen. Where do you find them? Before the thunderstorm. Don't we often comment, I think a storm's coming, the air's heavy with positive ions. The city. So we've got a few things happening in the city that's contributing to the positive ions. One is we've got a lot of people. There's not a lot of forests in the city, is there? <laughs> we've got a lot of people and they're all giving out carbon dioxide but some of those people are breathing out carbon monoxide because they are smoking. Carbon monoxide is found in, is, it was given off from uh, cigarette smoke. So the purple person smoking it and also the passive smokers are getting that carbon monoxide. You also find cars giving off carbon monoxide and because of the high buildings and not a lot of sun getting right down in there, you've also got mould growth, especially where there's rubbish build-up in those back streets. I know at the moment that uh, there's been quite a few deaths in India from COVID. You've probably seen that. But have you ever been to India? The, the filth is just filth everywhere. 
So you've got a lot of mold. You haven't got a lot of pure air. And I was talking to one lady that works with them. She said, oh, they're terrible for drinking water. It's actually been a disaster waiting to happen. And if it wasn't COVID, it would have been something else. Let's have a look at carbon monoxide. Because carbon monoxide is the enemy of oxygen, and I'll show you why. So carbon monoxide, when it's breathed in, it forms a very tight union on the blood cell. But when oxygen's breathed in, it forms a very unstable union, very loose. And the reason for that is when that blood cell is going through our body, it can drop the oxygen quickly wherever it is needed. So if someone's breathing in carbon monoxide and oxygen, can you see the, the monoxide's going to grab it first? Because it forms a very tight union. And that explains why if you go to a hospital ward where limbs are being amputated, it's usually smokers. Because by the time the blood gets to the extremities, there's no oxygen left. And if, remember, it's the most vital element needed for life when those... When those extremities are lacking oxygen, basically they start to die. Something else can affect, and that is hydration. You would never think of hydration when you're thinking of oxygen. But under a microscope, blood cells look like this. They're moving around. They're moving it around at an incredible rate. But if someone's dehydrated, the blood cells clump. It's actually called roulette. Now, when those blood cells go through the lungs, they pick up oxygen like little parcels. When this goes through the lungs, how much oxygen is it picking up? Can you see that someone can suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome? And of course, that's what lack of oxygen is called. Isn't that right? Chronic fatigue syndrome. All a person with chronic fatigue syndrome needs is more oxygen. Now, there can be a hundred reasons why there is lack of oxygen. We've just looked at some of them. And one is dehydration. If you ask the person with chronic fatigue syndrome, do they exercise, what's the answer? Now, you, you don't understand. I've just got no energy. Well, guess how you get it? You, you, you actually start moving. That's what you've got to do. I would say in nine cases out of ten of people that have come to our retreats with chronic fatigue syndrome, I find a mold factor. You see, when a person's breathing in mold, they're not getting enough ex oxygen, so a lot of their cells, where are they running? Up at two units of energy. That's why the detective hat has to be put on and find out why these things are so. Also, something that can affect chronic fatigue syndrome is animals in the home. Because animals are not giving off pure air. <laughs> and especially when they are meat eaters. And most animals in the home are meat eaters, isn't that right? Which is your cats and your dogs. What they give off is not a, is not a nice air. And also the hair that they leave in the carpets, on the lounges. We were looking in the ladies' blood slide. This is about five years ago now doing the lifeblood analysis, and we saw a little parasite. We actually saw two through the blood, and we're, we're zooming around on the microscope, 
And we said to this lady, do you, do you have any animals in your home? She said, I sleep with four cats every night. And we said, well, look what they've done to you. <laughs> look what they've given you. So animals really should be kept outside or they should be kept in, in tiled areas, definitely not in the bedrooms because that interferes with the air that you're breathing while you're sleeping. Please begin to investigate your, your bed. How old is your mattress? Do you have a mattress protector on it? Is that washed every few months? Is your pillow, look where your pillow is, it's right where your face is. Every pillow should have a pillow protector on it. If you don't have a pillow protector on it, maybe you should buy a new pillow every year. Especially feather, I love feather, it's a natural fibre, but every night we lose moisture and the feathers take it in. So the feather pillows and quilts should be regularly sunned and ideally washed every couple of years. So yes, it's time to get clotheslines and put them out. The sun purifies, the sun penetrates very deep. So investigate your sleeping area because you spend a third of your life in that room and that can interfere with your oxygen uptake. Also, posture. Why posture? When your, your uh, muscles in your abdominal area are all connected to your spine. So when they are loose, the posture tends to be like this. But when the abdominal muscles are strong, that automatically helps to pull your spine back. And your abdominal muscles were designed to aid in the breathing process. Many people are high chest breathers today. They're only breathing with their high chest because their abdominal muscles are weak and they don't have good posture. So it's important to stand tall, that erect form, where sons and daughters, princes and princesses of the most high God. So, so stand as the prince and the princess that you are and make sure you strengthen those abdominal muscles. If you're only breathing with your high chest, sometimes you're only getting maybe a third or half the amount of oxygen that you should be getting. The Framingham Heart Study, interesting study, I think I mentioned it the other day, they found that by the age of 50, most people had lost 40% lung capacity. By the age of 80, most had lost 60% lung capacity. How would they do that? They stop using those lungs. They start sitting like this. They become high chest breathers. They're not exercising. How can you retain it? Run up and down those hills every day. Strengthen your abdominal muscles. Do your push-ups every day. Do your core strengthening exercises every day. And breathe deeply and make sure those windows are open, especially while you're sleeping. So you can prevent uh, the loss of that lung capacity if you do that. And if you have lost that lung capacity, you can regain it by exercising it. And how do you exercise it? Breathing very, very deeply. So what we have done here is we have explored many ways that you can ensure that you're getting adequate oxygen. I know when I was homeschooling my children and the long division was getting difficult and I found the children when they're not, you know, when they're not getting something, they can even be difficult to work with, they're feeling bad, so I'd call a break. Okay, skipping rope, trampoline, run around the house three times, get on your bike. They'd come back ten minutes later like this. Can you see the face? And well, they get it. 
So when you are studying, and hopefully you all are studying, we should be learning new things every single day. Remember to take little breaks and get on that rebound or that exercise bike or run around the house or run up a hill and get replenish those brain cells with the oxygen so that you can learn new things. We should be learning new things right up until the, until the day we die. So you can see why oxygen is the most vital element needed for life. I do acknowledge that there are some areas where you have to wear a mask. So please make sure it's a cotton mask and please make sure that you can wash it and you must wash it every day because you're breathing out the waste and it gets stuck in those little fibres. Try and get a, as a looser cotton one as, as you can. And as soon as you're out of that shop, <laughs> take that mask on and get the fresh air. And please don't put your children in a mask. Because, you know, children aren't getting COVID. It's the elderly who are getting it. Because those children need that fresh air. The second law of health is sunshine. God didn't make a mistake when he put the sun in the sky. But we're not going to look at sunshine right now. We're going to look at that after the break. What I want to look at now is the third law of health, which is temperance. Temperance means not taking anything into the body that will harm it and taking in moderation the good things. So notice there are two things there. That's the dictionary definition of temperance. Number one is there are some things that should not enter and the other is taking in moderation the good things. So basically, all good things. Some people say moderation in all things. You would never say moderation in cyanide or arsenic. No, there are some things that should never be taken into the body, but all the good things should be done in moderation. All play and no work makes Jack a very poor boy, and all work and no play makes Jack a very dull boy, aren't they the old sayings? It surprises me that we've come to a time on planet Earth where adults don't include children in the work of the home. Have you found that? I was reading of a uh, British paediatrician. He came to Australia. He said, I thought the slave trade was abolished. He said, it's alive and well in Australia. It's called mother. Isn't that interesting? We had a young girl. She came to help while her mother did the program. She was 15. She was totally useless. She couldn't do a single thing. She'd never cleaned a toilet. She'd never made a bed. She couldn't even chop up an apple. We ended up getting you to just sit and listen to the lectures because we couldn't afford a staff member to teach her. She got angry. She got angry at her mother. She said to her mother, why didn't you teach me? And the mother said, I thought I was being a good mother. Mm. You know, when you do it, you do everything for your baby. Right. <laughs> and I know mothers find it hard, the transition from baby to little toddler. But I used to think, Child, dirty plate, who should clean the plate? Child throws jacket on the ground, who should pick up the jacket? So it's very important to teach your child to work because then you've got time to play with them. And both are very important. My, my daughter has taught her seven children to work. They are workers. And the twin girls, they're 16, they're working two days a week now in a nursery. 
And the boss told them recently, he said, I wasn't going to employ you because I am sick of teenagers. He said, they don't come to work, they don't know how to work, they don't want to work. But he said, I needed some workers, so I thought I'd try you. He said, I have never met teenagers like you. Now, where did they learn to work? They learned to work here when they were little. When you deprive children of work, you deprive them of the joy of accomplishment. So please, include them. And when you include them in the work in the home, then you've got time to play with them. And both are very, very important. So basically, it's a balance. All good things should be done in moderation. But there are some things that should never enter the human body if you're looking for optimum performance. And I consider the pure crystallized acid extracted from the sugarcane plant one of the most lethal substances. In his book, Pure, White and Deadly, Dr. Yupkin, he claims it should be banned. It is so dangerous. How is it dangerous? It gets the blood sugar level up very high, very fast, and then the body, to cope with this, sends a huge amount of insulin to get it out of the blood and into the cell. And now we're too low. And when the person's down there, what do they do? I have another bit of sugar, is that right? So you get this whiplash. And what's happening now, pancreases are wearing out far too soon. And then children are being born with weakened pancreases. There's really, the, the true pandemic on the planet is heart disease and diabetes, wouldn't you say so? That's, that's the true pandemic. They're, they're the number one killers. And that's sugar. I'm not referring to honey, maple syrup. The, the natural or the coconut sugars. I'm referring to the pure crystallized acid that's been extracted from the sugarcane plant. I thank God that there are many alternatives. But if someone has diabetes, they can't even take those natural sugars until the pancreas is strong. Hybridized wheat. In the 1950s, wheat went through the hybridization process. What the scientists wanted, they wanted to create a plant with a high yield of grain to help with the starvation crisis. And they did. Remember, wheat used to grow that high. Most people don't even, today don't even know that. In fact, we had a wheat farmer do our program. His parents are wheat farmers. He's 25. He was shocked when I said wheat used to grow that high. You see, at first, it still grew that high, but it was such a heavy yield of grain that the stalks broke before they could harvest it. So back to the drawing board, and they eventually came up with a wheat that only grows that high, has a thick stalk, and it can hold the heavy yield of grain. We had a man do our program, and he said, my brother is a wheat farmer, and he's in his 60s, late 60s, and he remembers the old wheat, and he loves the new wheat. Do you know why? He can get six times more grain per acre. What's that? Six times more money per acre. No wonder they like it. But what was never addressed was the effect on the body. This wheat went through, went through intensive crossbreeding, but it bypassed the safety studies. Did you know that the COVID vaccine has totally bypassed all the safety studies? We're going to be cautious of things that don't go through safety studies. What it created is a starch structure that gets the blood sugar level up higher than even sugar. Let me show you. 
This starch structure is called amylopectin A. An amylopectin A gets the blood sugar level up very high, very fast, then you've got a corresponding dump. Let me give you something to compare it to. Amylopectin B is found in bananas and potatoes, and if you're familiar with the glycemic index of food, that gets it up relatively high, relatively fast. So the B, so this is the A. What's the B? The B, the B is not quite as high, not quite as fast, not quite as low. And for the diabetic, they still want to keep away from the B. Amylopectin C is found in chickpeas or garbanzos, lima beans, black-eyed beans, lentils, all your legumes. So amylopectin C gets a nice steady rise. Sorry, I can't draw off the board or I'd be over there. There's your C. That's what every single cell in the body wants. It wants a steady, consistent, sure delivery of fuel. So let's have a look at the glycemic index of food, considering this. 55 is your baseline, so under 55 are your low GIs. So cherries, in fact just about all your berries, they sit at 25, whereas grapefruit, it sits at, it sits at about 24. So people who want a nice low delivery of fuel, like your diabetics, they're, they're your better fruits. Where does sugar sit? Sugar sits at 59, whether it's white or tan or brown. Where does um, white bread, let's have a look at white bread. So that's your refined wheat. It sits at 69. Wow, so your white bread will get the blood sugar level up higher than sugar. But what's a really shocker is whole wheat. So your whole wheat... It sits at 72. Now, how could that be? How could whole wheat get the blood sugar level up higher than white bread? Because it's not refined, it has more amylopectin A in it, and it's the amylopectin A that gets that blood sugar level up. One lady was talking to my husband, and he said, and she said, how come Barbara says white bread's better than wholemeal bread? He said, what? Whole wheat bread has more fiber. Of course it has more B vitamins. What I'm referring to here is the starch structure. And it was the hybridization process that did it. You still can get ancient grains. The original wheat was called Enkenhorn, and you can still get that. Spelt, Kamut. They're ancient grains. They haven't been hybridized, and so they haven't got this amylopectin A in them. If you want to pursue this a little bit more, there's an excellent book by um, Dr. Davis, William Davis. It's called Wheat Belly. And he gives the whole story of what happened to the wheat. He, he also quotes Dr. Norman Boulag, who got a Nobel Prize in the early 70s because of this hybridised wheat. And no one complains about wanting to have more food to save the starvation crisis, but... The safety studies were never done. And this explains the absolute explosion that we're seeing in diabetes today. And what are diabetics told to eat? Whole wheat bread, whole wheat pasta, whole wheat.
Are they healing? No, they're not. They're not. So that explains so much. It's what they've done for the wheat. That's the problem. We're not talking about the original wheat. Caffeine. How many Americans woke up to these three this morning? The coffee and the muffin, the coffee and the croissant, the coffee and the toast, the coffee and the cereal. So what's the problem with caffeine? Let me show you. Our nervous system is made up of nerve cells, and these nerve cells are different to other cells. These nerve cells make up our electrical system. These nerve cells communicate with each other via little chemical messengers. This is the nerve cell. What I'm drawing now is the arm coming out, the little boutons at the end of the filaments, and here is the next nerve cell. So our nervous system, and by the way, there are one trillion of these in our brain, they communicate with each other by little chemical messengers. Here's the little chemical messengers. They're coming in. They're encapsulated in the nucleus. They're sent down the arm into the little boutons, and then they're released out to the next nerve cell. Now, that, those nerve cells, with their little neurotransmitters, they can be communicating at two, anywhere between two and 200 miles an hour. In a crisis, they're, they're moving very fast. What caffeine does is it interferes with these neurotransmitters. So one is adenosine. And adenosine is a neurotransmitter that acts like the brakes. And when caffeine goes into the body, adenosine levels drop. You know what that means? Brakes are failing. Our brain runs according to precision balance. So when the brakes start to fail, the body says, whoa, quick, we're lacking brakes. Develop extra receptor sites on every dendrite to grab every bit of adenosine that comes through. Then the person comes to Living Springs Retreat. We don't serve any coffee. Adenosine levels go back to normal. Receptor sites get flooded. Oh, does that hurt? That explains the pain and suffering we see in our guests that have been drinking coffee. We had one couple come. They're two girlfriends. They're in their 30s. And on the plane trip to our retreat, they decided to just get everything. Because they're going to a health retreat, they ate the chocolates and the coats and the coffees. Wow, those girls, they couldn't get out of bed for the first 24 hours. So if someone says to me, what can we do to prepare for the retreat? I say, stop the coffee. And that is actually too hard. So you know what I say? Ease off the coffee. The best way to do it is little by little by little. In the library here, there's a book called Caffeine Blues. And he's got a chapter called Coming Off the Bean. And he shows how you can do it without pain and suffering. He says every day just have a little less, a little less, a little less. Instead of having three cups of coffee a day, have three half cups of coffee a day. Then a quarter and then you just ease it out like that. The other neurotransmitter is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that has to do with brain function, and it rises when a person has a cup of coffee. Isn't that why people have coffee and work? Don't talk to me out and have a coffee yet. Yeah. yeah. And the other one is dopamine. 
Dopamine is your pursuit of reward, pursuit of happiness hormone. It also rises with a cup of coffee. That's why you hear people say, oh, I love my coffee. It just gets me going in the morning, makes me feel better, gets my brain going. Oh, yes, that's the acetylcholine. Yes, that's the dopamine. But you can't keep doing it. It's like taking out a loan to pay off your loan. What's the old saying? Robbing Peter to pay Paul. Eventually, your adrenal glands are exhausted. Eventually, you actually, it's not doing it anymore. So instead of three cups of coffee a day, it has to go to five cups of coffee a day. It's an addictive cycle. No wonder people have chronic fatigue syndrome. It's usually a result of too much of the caffeine, too much of the stimulants. Headquarters, we're going to headquarters on Saturday morning. But these, these two, they disrupt the fuel supply to the brain and caffeine disrupts the chemical imbalance or the chemical balance in the brain causing an imbalance. And yet, isn't that the, the breakfast most Americans start with? No wonder teachers are having trouble with teaching kids in the school when, when this is the breakfast. Now we're going to look at the neurotoxins. One neurotoxin is mercury. A neurotoxin means brain poison. In fact, what it means is kills brain cells. And we've got to look after our brain cells, the ones we have now, we have for life. How can we be exposed to mercury? We can be exposed through fish. There's hardly a fish today that doesn't have some mercury in it because of all the chemicals and industry that's pumped into the sea. You can also be exposed to mercury by the silver coloured fillings in the mouth, those dark coloured fillings. One of the problems with mercury, apart from the fact that it is a neurotoxin, is that it accumulates. It's called bioaccumulative. The bigger the fish, the higher the concentration of mercury. The longer the mercury fillings in the mouth, the more it is accumulating in the tissues. The third place is the, the vaccines. In 1998, they banned mercury from the childhood vaccination because of the clear, proven link between autism and the mercury in the vaccines. So the mercury isn't in the childhood vaccines anymore, but it still is in the flu vaccine, which means it's quite possibly in the COVID vaccine. It's a neurotoxin. There is no safe dose of mercury. You can't play with this stuff. But what you can do is you can take steps to make sure it does not come into your body. Alcohol is also a neurotoxin and there is no safe dose of alcohol. That's a statement from the Australian Health Department 10 years ago. There is no safe dose of alcohol. You have in your history in America the prohibition. That's 1920 to 1933. America did well in those years. The Mental institution occupancies dropped to 8%. Domestic violence almost wiped out, all because alcohol has stopped. Alcohol is a neurotoxin. There is no safe dose of it. Tobacco, there are 4,000 chemicals in cigarettes today. There is no safe dose of, of, of tobacco. We have a, a wood fire in our home, which is very nice in the winter, but you know what we've got to do every couple of years is clean that chimney out. Well, that's what's happening in the chimneys of smokers, which is all these little bronchials here. If I say to someone, your, your father or your mother, are they still alive? No. 
uh, how did they die? Lung cancer. What's my next question? Did they smoke? Almost without exception, about 99.8%. Yes, they were a smoker. In Australia, I don't know in America, but there are really graphic pictures on every cigarette packet. I don't know if you have that. There's diseased lungs, there's gangrene toes, there's trying to get the message that this is toxic. Please don't do it. Drugs? Drugs never cure disease. They just change the form and location of the disease. There are some drugs that cannot be stepped immediately. There are some drugs that can be stopped immediately. There are drugs that need to be eased off. I believe that it is our responsibility to prove to our doctor that we can conquer our ailments naturally. I love surprising the doctor, yeah? And we've seen many people get back to us and say, my doctor is astonished because I'm managing my problem with, without the medication. Yes, drugs can save a life in a crisis. We're not talking about a crisis. We're talking about day-to-day -day lives. MSG, monosodium glutinate. Monosodium glutinate causes the nerve cells on the tongue to overfire. And when the nerve cells on the tongue overfire, these nerve cells get exhausted and can even die. If monosodium glutinate is on a food, it excites the nerve cells on the tongue and so the food tastes fantastic. That's a worry, isn't it? You know what that means? Rotten food, bad food, would taste good. Now be careful because monosodium glutinate has a few other names today. Natural flavour enhancer. That almost sounds healthy, doesn't it? So please become label readers. Find out what is in your food. Your handbag or your man bag needs, probably needs a magnifying glass in it because it's that real small print that's hard to read. Whereas you don't even have to read it when you're in the fruits and vegetables section, is that right? So, your fruits and veggies. But what you do have to go for is your organics. And I noticed here in America, it's very easy to buy organics. You know, Costco and uh, you've got Trader Joe's, there's big organic sections. Chemicals, we need to get the chemicals out of our homes, out of our toothpaste, out of our washing detergent, out of our clothes. We need to get the chemicals out of the home. So clean with white vinegar. Remember what bleach will do? It will kill mould, but it will feed fungus. And putting bleach on mould, you create one of the most toxic combinations on the planet. So clean areas with white vinegar, also sodium bicarbonate. And if you've got a particularly tough area to clean, you can put a little pile of sodium bicarbonate, pour a little bit of vinegar there and you'll get a fizzing up, you get a nice reaction, you get the scrubbing brush into that area. I think most people are well aware, you clean every week. I know when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist at the age of 25, I love the Sabbath message. Because then, every Friday, my house got a big clean. <laughs> and before I became a Christian, it was sort of when I thought of it. But I wanted to have my house all clean, all my washing done, because it's hard to have a Sabbath rest if you've got a pile of laundry or you've got a dirty bathroom. So it certainly made me a better housekeeper, because every week I 
I had my house all nice and clean. When you keep things clean, you don't have to resort to the chemicals. And when you become a vegetarian and you're, you're cooking in the oven, you don't get that fat buildup that you get with uh, cooking, cooking meat. So it's a lot easier to clean. But be mindful of your cleaning products. Also, we're talking about leaving a nice smell. Sodium bicarbonate vinegar don't leave a nice smell. That's where your essential oils. And I think it's tonight that Vanessa will be talking to you about your essential oils. There are some beautiful essential oils that you can use, not only to give a nice scent, but especially your clove and your thyme and your oregano, they, they really push back the, the, the growth of mould. And of course, I'm Australian. I love the eucalyptus. The eucalyptus oil smells very nice too. So have a look at alternatives to your chemicals. Also mould, there should be no mould in the house at all. If there is, don't allow yourself to be exposed. That's a good time for a mask. <laughs> That's a good time to have your body well clothed. Don't, don't allow any mould to get into your body. It'll go in through your skin, you can breathe it in, so please protect yourself. If there is mould in your house, you've got to get the builder or you've got to get the plumber. You've got to find out why it is there. Is it that big tree that's over the house? Is it because the gutters need to be cleaned? You've got to find out why, why it is there. Also, electromagnetic field excess. Please take steps to have an electromagnetic free... electromagnetic field free bedroom. Remember, we spend a third of our life in there. So have your, have your phones or your iPads, computers charging in another room. Also be very cautious with the children. If you, children in your home are used to a lot of technology, start easing it off. Start easing it back, easing it back. And remember the Russian guidelines. In fact, here's a good one. Two minutes for the two-year-old, five minutes for the five-year-old. 10 minutes for the 10 year old. By the 15, yeah, it can become an hour. By the 18 year old, maybe three hours. So be very cautious of children's exposure to technology. We've got to protect the next generation from the chemicals, from the electromagnetic field danger. It's a very socially acceptable list, isn't it? There's no need for me to talk to you about the dangers of methamphetamines, of morphine, of heroin, of cyanide, of arsenic, but I think that's fairly obvious to most, but there is a definite need for people to become aware of the danger of this very socially acceptable list. And little by little, like the dripping tap on a stone, they're eating away at body functions and contributing to the demise and disease of so many human beings. And that's why temperance is an important law of health. We're going to have a break now, and after the break we will come back and we'll look, visit Dr. Sunshine.